0: Welcome to Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. What you see affects what you believe. Think I'm wrong? Then riddle me this. Why do angels have wings? One of the coolest things that art does is to show us things that we could not see otherwise. It makes the invisible visible, makes the impossible appear in front of our eyes or even our hands imagination becomes one step closer to reality and with a little divine intervention it might just make that final leap. In the ancient world the best artists were those whose paintings or sculptures could fool you into thinking that they were real. There was always the possibility that a painting or a sculpture might become actually a living thing. The original Pygmalion story wasn't about Eliza Doolittle and Professor Higgins. It was about a Greek sculptor who never could manage to find a wife for himself. No mortal woman he ever met was quite right, so he sculpted one. He spent days, weeks, months sculpting his ideal woman. He fell in love with her, of course. Eventually, the goddess of love took pity on him, and when he returned home one day after prayer at the temple to Aphrodite, lo and behold, his statue had become a real girl! They got married and, of course, lived happily ever after. Impossible? Couldn't happen in real life? Well, sure! But see, that's what art does. It messes with reality. And when you're looking for a way to explain the relationship between us poor mortals and the forces that control the world that we live in, what better way than through art? Which is why art is really impossible to separate from religion and politics. Oh, the perils of religion and religious imagery. Are images powerful in and of themselves or not? Are images of God fundamental or forbidden? And how do you show people things that they can only really see if they are high, or stoned, or dreaming? What visual cues will you use to illustrate sometimes elaborate concepts of the divine? In Hindu art, gods like Vishnu and Shiva are painted or sculpted with multiple heads and arms, each one with a different attribute and expression. All of these heads and arms and sometimes legs allow the artist to show several different facets of a supernatural being all at once. They also allow the artist to communicate several things at once through mudras or hand gestures that act as a basic form of sign language. Now, if you're into yoga, you probably already know a few mudras. There's one for teaching, one for blessing, one for saying, Fear not! And by the way... If you were raised in Catholicism or Orthodox Christianity, you know these hand gestures already. Because guess where Christian artists got the idea for all those gestures that various saints and angels make in all of those marvelous paintings? Hinduism. But we were going to talk about wings. That means, again, talking about the Middle East and ancient Sumeria. Enkidu, Gilgamesh's best friend, dies and gets buried, and Gilgamesh has a nightmare about Enkidu who tells him just how rotten it is to be dead. When Enkidu tells him about the horrors of the afterlife, he mentions birds. Birds, Enkidu says, flit between the realm of the dead and the world of the living, and it's rather depressing that birds are the only visitors, but that gives us an important clue. Winged creatures travel between realms, between the world of the natural and the world of the supernatural. We see a similar thing in ancient Egypt, where gods take on zoomorphic elements all the time. Speaking of zoomorphism, isn't that just a cool word? Zoo, of course, references anything associated with animals, like zoos. Morph means body, so zoomorphic means animal-like body. Anthropomorphic means human-like body, and Metamorphoses is a series of myths and legends by Ovid. Okay, it also means transformation from one kind of body to another. In ancient Egyptian art, we often see people with wings, scarab wings frequently. Scarabs are associated with eternity and the sun, which travels between the mortal world and the underworld every day. So it's not surprising that gods, particularly gods associated with death, should sometimes be depicted with scarab wings. Uh, if they were depicted with scarab carapaces, that's just not as pretty, and people respond better to pretty. It's, it's actually scientific fact. People respond better to beauty. In an earlier podcast, I talked about lions and how the whole perception of lions is practically as old as the hills. I, literally. It's the same with winged beings. All over the Mediterranean, in every culture that was influenced one way or another by Sumeria and Egypt, which is basically all of them, people whose job involves travel between this world and the supernatural world are depicted with wings. In the art of the Roman Empire, which was often borrowed from just about everywhere else, there were three divine beings. I don't really want to call them gods because that makes it sound like they're Jupiter or Hera, uh, sorry, um, not Hera, Juno, or Mars or Venus, uh, and and the beings that I'm talking about are more second-tier divinities. Uh, They're almost always depicted with wings. Victory is one of them. She's Nike in Greece, and usually she shows up to crown the victorious warrior with a laurel wreath or an oak wreath or something like that. The other two are Cupid and Psyche, who's adorable. They're they're always depicted as these adorable, well, okay, not always, but often depicted as these adorable little children with wings. Cupid gets bird's wings, and Psyche gets butterfly wings. Now Psyche gets butterfly wings because she started off as a human being, nearly died, and was basically resurrected as a goddess. So she's got this transformation thing going that is rather butterfly-like. These two uh, are frequently depicted as embodiments of the heart and the soul, and they show up all over the place playing around with doing various different trades, It's actually a visual pun symbolizing putting your heart and soul into your work. Romans love visual puns. They love puns in general. What does all this have to do with Christianity and angels? We're getting there. Promise. Now, when Christianity got its start, it was just a weird little blip on the radar of cultural weirdnesses on the fringes of the Roman Empire. Seriously, at the beginning of the Roman Empire, Judea was a podunk province in Nowheresville, Asia, populated by a cult of bonkers monotheists who only had one temple and believed in an invisible God. Jesus was a rabble-rousing hippie with a whole bunch of homeless nomadic hippie friends, and everyone expected his weird peace-love-healing movement to kick the bucket when he did. Unfortunately for all the powers that were, he didn't stay dead. And that story ended up catching the attention of hundreds, and then thousands, and then millions of people. Eventually, being Christian in the Roman Empire was the equivalent of uh, being a pot smoker today. Uh, Work with me here. It might be illegal in most states, pot smoking, and it might have a really bad reputation among some neighborhoods and some segments of society, but that doesn't stop anybody from smoking a joint if they want to, and generally speaking, everybody ignores it. The only time you have to really be careful is when there's a rabid politician on the loose, bound and determined to make his reputation by cutting down on crime. Then, smoking pot will get you arrested. Christianity was the same way. Nobody really cared unless some ruler is rabidly religious or politically ambitious and figured out that Christians were the antithesis of civilization. Then Christians had to make the choice to either keep a low profile or go out and get themselves martyred. Guess what they chose most of the time? Martyrdom the church leaders eventually had to send letters to Christian congregations telling them to stop volunteering to get themselves killed already because Christianity needed to survive the Roman Empire. Thank you very much. But you see, martyrdom by execution meant getting killed in the great spiritual war against evil, and that meant going straight to paradise. Being executed, tortured, or whatever, and never renouncing your faith was a victory in your personal war against evil. Uh, Ahem. Note that word victory, and remember that we're in the Roman Empire? Yeah. Keep that in mind for a sec. When, at the beginning of the fourth century, Constantine decided that Christianity was so popular it might as well be legal, besides his mother was a Christian, he placed this weird monotheistic salvation-from-death religion under imperial protection. When that happened, suddenly artists needed to, to accommodate Christianity, and we're talking real artists, artists with imperial commissions, not the folk artists that Christians were used to working with, the kinds of artists that uh, you end up seeing their work in the catacombs and at Dura Europa and places like that. Now we have really good artists, uh, experts, who are combing scriptural texts for things that they can illustrate, like cherubim and seraphim and all sorts of other divine beings. Because, hey, even if you couldn't depict God, you could depict lots of other things. And all those writings were culturally founded in Sumeria. Yeah, Sumeria, not not Judea. Sumeria. Because, see... Abraham and Isaac and, and, Isaac and Jacob, we'll, we'll go with Abraham and his wife Sarah. Guess where they're originally from? Ur. Right in the Tigris and Euphrates Valley, a hop, skip, and a jump from Uruk, which is where Gilgamesh was. And yes, see, I told you so. Wings, angels, birds. But, right, be careful about calling everything angels. Hang on a second. So, prophets from Israel had all of these visions about. Uh, divine messengers of God, seraphim and cherubim, and they have all kinds of eyes and all kinds of multiple sets of wings. And while that's just fun to illustrate, artists had a great time with that, particularly in the 6th and 7th centuries. Some of those paintings are just fabulous. But anyway... As martyrs and soldiers became saints and victors in the war against evil, they get illustrated with winged victories, giving them laurel wreaths. And then, of course, there's Christ as the God of love, and Cupid as the God of love, and there you have it. Angels, whether interpreted as servants of God, messengers of God, depictions of victory over evil, or manifestations of God's love, all end up having wings. Now, this is where language becomes really, really important. Let's say you're traveling through an art museum and you see a painting, and in this painting there is a baby with wings. How are you going to describe it? If you call it a baby angel, you are saying that the picture is Christian and that the baby with wings is a painted manifestation of divine love, because that's what a baby angel is. But what if this baby with wings is riding a dolphin? or holding a quiver of arrows and a bow. If you keep on calling it a baby angel, you're going to start interpreting the whole artwork as though it were associated with Christianity. And then you are liable to go really far afield. I can only imagine what weird stories you could tell with baby angels and sea monsters and divine providence. Oh wait, that's Jonah and the whale. And now my head hurts. because a baby with wings riding a dolphin is not a baby angel. He is Amor, the Roman god of love, the son of Venus, and definitely not Christian, (laughs) early Christians, would be appalled and probably excommunicate you for even thinking such a thing. As far as they were concerned, all pagan gods were demons. By the way, Fun literary conceit, amor, A-M-O-R, spelled backwards, is Roma, R-O-M-A. Yay, it's another pun. It shows up in Roman literature all the time. And half the time, when you're seeing Cupid in Roman art, you have to be careful, because it might just be yet another visual pun. Now, remember how victory is always winged? If you're looking at Roman or Greek art and you see a woman with wings and a trumpet or a wreath, she's not likely to be an angel either. If you call her an angel, you're claiming that the Greeks and the Romans are attributing whatever victory they're celebrating to the Judeo-Christian God, and nothing could be farther from the truth. Calling her an angel opens the door to another can of worms that, once again, might get you excommunicated from whatever early Christian community you decide to pretend that you're a part of. Now, that means, of course, right, once again, ethnocentrism bad. You have to pay attention to the time and the place where you're at. Now, while we're on the topic of angels, we might as well talk about their opposites, demons, Everyone knows what the devil looks like, right? Horns, pointed ears, usually red, sometimes with fangs or goat's legs and a tail. At least, that's one really common way of depicting devils and demons. Welcome to the remnants of medieval Christianity's propaganda campaign against paganism. Paganism is really the religion of the countryside. Pagani means country folk, and so paganism is the belief of country folk. See... Christianity got its start in cities, and that's where it flourished and caught on the quickest and the strongest. Out in the country, people hold on to traditions a lot more strongly. They're not likely to change unless there's a seriously compelling reason to do so. Even then, good luck. They're likely to say whatever you want them to say, nod and smile until you're gone, and then they'll go right back to business as usual as soon as you've left. The gods of the country lasted a really long time and they're often represented either as satyrs and fawns, or hanging out with satyrs and fawns. Now satyrs and fawns are often depicted as being very tan, which usually translates to red pigment in art, and with pointed ears, horns, and goats' legs or horses' tails. Satyrs and fauns are prone to violence and lust and silliness. They love music and wine and dancing, and they're really some of my favorite beings in all of myth and legend. I really want to hang out with them as long as they're not drunk, because, you know, drunk means all sorts of bad things. But when they're moderately sober, they're a blast. Christian leaders couldn't stand them. In order to root out the last teeny remnants of the old ways, they decided to p- depict the devil as a fawn. That way, Christians would learn to be afraid of fauns whenever they saw them and would ostracize people whose religion followed fauns and satyrs and mob mentality would do the rest. It worked a little too well. And by the way, Christian leaders would use that same construct all the way through the Renaissance. It also gets used in political propaganda all the time. The way you depict an adversary, if you dehumanize them and demonize them, turn them into something evil, uh, then it doesn't matter what they actually look like. People will have that image imprinted in their heads, and that's how they interpret it. Um, Look at some World War II propaganda posters about the Tokyo Kid, if you uh, don't believe me. This has been an episode of Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between.